you crafted a space with the goal of inducing anxiety in anyone who set foot inside, you'd probably end up with something close to a movie theater projection booth. This might sound strange if you've never experienced one, but a booth is designed for darkness and silence, two things that tend to unnerve even the most stalwart of souls. The light from the powerful projector bulbs sometimes bleeds out to cast strange shadows in the walls, and the staccato clatter of celluloid feeding through spools is often the only sound you hear. Add in cramped spaces and sometimes labyrinthian corridors, and you understand why the average employee spends as little time as possible upstairs. And then there are theaters like the old El Toro. It opened its doors in the early 1980s, and it reflected the design aesthetic of the time. Rows of tiny light bulbs lined the marquee outside and the interior hallway, with large mirrors covering most of the walls. Wide staircases on either side of the lobby led to the restrooms and the small arcade. Swathed in golds and reds and an excess of brass detailing, it tried to invoke the great movie palaces of a bygone era. The auditoriums held between three to five hundred people, and in its heyday, they were often packed. But much like big hair and hypercolor shirts, that style fell out of fashion. Stadium seating and surround sound became the norm, and the El Toro was a poor candidate for a refit. Walking through the door in the late 90s, its grandeur had gone to seed. The once vibrant red carpets turned a brownish shade of maroon thanks to a decade and a half of dirty feet and soda spills. Cracked mirrors, burnt-out bulbs, and antiquated cash registers only accentuated the feeling of a cinematic relic. By the time I started working there, we had nights with only a dozen paying customers and a deposit that wouldn't cover a single staff member's salary. The El Toro clung to life by the threat of a tax write-off for its parent company. That didn't mean it was without its loyal patrons, however. Most came from the nearby retirement community, and they showed up in droves for their favorite actors. You might not remember the Kevin Costner film Message in a Bottle, but at the El Toro it sold like opening night of a Star Wars movie. You got to know the regulars. Sometimes they'd just be the junior mint guy, and some you knew by name. Whether they gave us a few kind words or stopped to regale us with fascinating stories from their lives, we loved most of these customers. And in turn, they loved the El Toro in spite of, and sometimes even because of, its lack of modern amenities. I soon learned just how deeply that loyalty could run. One afternoon, the projector in Theater 5, our largest auditorium, malfunctioned at the start of a show. Malfunctions in an old theater are a way of life, and our lack of sales put us at the bottom of the priority list for repairs. That meant the El Toro thrived on creative solutions and workarounds. Given we had a half-full house, it must have been another Costner film, we needed one. It turned out the projector stayed on so long as you kept the start button pressed down. As the newest member of the team, I was given this momentous task. I found myself in a chair out of the sight line of the booth window, so I couldn't watch the movie, nor could I turn on a light and read. Inevitably, my eyelids grew heavier and heavier. Before long, my head lowered, and I started to drift off. Then someone hit me. It felt like a slap on the back, the kind you'd give a friend to jostle them awake in class. However, the hand that struck me felt cold, like it had been soaking in ice. As I spun around, I could have sworn I saw someone disappear down the hallway toward another projector. The manager on duty, no doubt, playing a prank on me. But I never saw him return to the door leading downstairs. I only saw him about halfway through the film when he came upstairs to start another movie. He claimed he'd never been upstairs until just now, having taken my spot behind the concession stand. I remained upstairs for the remaining hour of the film by myself, but I could never shake the feeling that I wasn't alone, feeling like I saw someone just out of the corner of my eye. 
Still, I largely forgot about that experience until a year later. A different assistant manager and I were closing out the books when problems in Theater 5 came up again. A guest came out and told us it looked like the film had just burned, and the manager went upstairs to discover the worst-case scenario laid out in front of him. I'll spare you the technical details, but imagine trying to untangle a string of Christmas lights a mile and a half long. I got a crash course in film splicing in my first ever 14-hour work shift, trying to salvage the print for the next morning's first show. In addition to being an impromptu film surgical assistant, my other task was refilling our soda cups for the caffeine to fuel this all-nighter. About four in the morning, I walked down the stairs yet again to discover the doors to Theater 5 closed. We leave them open at the end of every night, closing them only when a film is showing. I thought perhaps our morning janitorial service had shown up early, but I didn't see their cart anywhere. I propped the doors open. At this point, only the running lights along the aisles remained on, bathing the whole auditorium in dim red light. As I looked inside, my heart leapt into my throat. In the middle of the aisle, in a seat on the far right, a man sat in one of the chairs. Slowly, he turned to look at me. His brow furrowed in anger, though less raw fury, something closer to annoyance. I said nothing, neither did he. Instead, he gestured to the screen. I scrambled backward to a light switch hidden beneath a curtain and turned on the house lights. The fluorescence bathed the room, but the man was gone. His seat, however, was still flipped down. When I turned off the lights again, I didn't look back into the theater. I took a few minutes to let my heart calm down and walked back upstairs with the drinks. I never told the manager what I saw. I also never quite felt comfortable cleaning Theater 5 by myself after that, at least until a few months later. That's when I heard the rest of the story. During slow times at the theater, we loved to trade our craziest stories. I typically won with the tale of a customer who asked why John Wayne no longer made movies, unaware the Duke had passed away years prior. This time, however, the theater's general manager chimed in. None of you were here when that guy died, were you? They found him after a showing ended one day, still in his seat. At first, they thought he'd just fallen asleep, as it wasn't unheard of with our older customers. However, he was unresponsive. EMTs were called, but to no avail. He'd apparently died at some point during the movie. He was a beloved regular, a nice customer who always treated the staff with respect. They knew his concession order, his pre-show ritual of salting his popcorn, and the seat he always sat in. Middle aisle, far right seat, I said. My manager nodded. He died in Theater 5, didn't he? Without missing a beat, he responded to my question with another. You've seen him too, haven't you? I never really felt fear cleaning Theater 5 after that. After all, who doesn't love a customer who never leaves a mess? The El Toro persisted as long as it could, but bankruptcy and sale of the chain to a larger company made the tide too powerful to resist. The theater closed its doors and became a 24-hour fitness center. Not everything from the El Toro ended up before the bulldozer, however. The owners of another, older theater chain came calling, this one a true old movie palace recently restored to its full glory. They took some of the booth equipment and a few of the intact armrests from our seats. I like to believe they took one in particular, and that our most loyal patron is still enjoying movies to this day. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm a nostalgic Michael Tatum. Mm. Mm. Your movie theater days. 
I did. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I worked in a movie theater for a yeah. little while as a janitor, so I got to see it after hours when most people don't, when they are particularly creepy. But right. I also just have a weakness for old-fashioned, mm-hmm. you know, uh, golden era movie houses. Right. I, also, miss, I miss those. Fucking hypercolor. What? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Steve, for that submission, by yes, the way. thank you. This is one of my favorite stories I've ever gotten to read as it's a cold so open good. on our show. It's I got so goosebumps when I read it, good. and I got goosebumps again just now. It's I know. So good. It's so, it's so, it's creepy, but it's so sweet. It is. I it want is. to haunt a movie theater when I die, just so I can see movies. Can you imagine? Oh. That'd be awesome. That would be nice. But then, I mean, what if the movies are shit? Then you destroy the film. Amazing. Then you start shit. Oh my God, yes. that'd be great. Somebody needs to start like a review page for movies that works at a haunted movie theater, letting us know what the ghosts think of the film based on like, oh, this this movie seemed played without a hitch, so we think the ghost liked it. Right. Thumbs That's up. a great idea. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, the theater burned down after this movie. Thumbs up. I down. once was in a... I go to a couple movie theaters here that give me the creeps. And one of them I was in... Um, I walked into the ladies' restroom, and all of the doors were uh, shaking. They were, like, vibrating uh, all the way down. And it was... What's going on in that bathroom? It's crazy. And it had, like, that black and white tile, and then Mm -hmm. the back tile was, like, subway tile, but it was in bright yellow and bright red. It was like a dollar theater. But so much cleaner than the regular (laughs) theaters. That's how much they spent on the decor. Well, it used to be. It's one of the ones that used to be. But okay. it was it was garish, but it was fucking clean, and that's why I, I still I'll is. take I I'll love take it. clean. But they over. were all vibrating, yeah. and I was I was like, oh shit! And then I realized somebody had like banged a big trash can into the wall, and it had just shook them all. Oh, but it, God. for a minute, I was like, <gasps> and then uh, <laughs> one time I came out of the bathroom, and that and there was a trail of blood out the door, and I was like, what? And then it was really just some kid had cut her hand on something, and she walked in just to the bathroom and didn't realize till she was in the bathroom that she had cut her hand and was just trailing blood. Oh, God. But it was nice and creepy. But then <laughs> I was in there. Have we been to this theater together? I don't think so. Okay. It's great, though. It's nice and clean, and they're dollar movies. I think we have. Didn't we see, like, Keanu there? Maybe. Keanu? Yes, it's a yeah, good yeah. one. It's a it good is one. a good theater, but it's a little, little creepy. A little it, creepy. Yeah, so, okay. All the other things are explained, but one time I went, and I was in the restroom, and I heard, I was by myself, there weren't a lot of people, um, because they have, like, half price on Tuesdays, so you can see. It's like a 50-cent uh, movie. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> great. It's such a great thing. And so, uh, I heard, like, I was knew I was by myself, and I heard, don't, don't. And when I got out of the restroom, I looked, and each individual door was shutting on its own on the way down the aisle to me. And I was like, I'm done. I'll just use some anti, like some sanitary <laughs> like spray on my hands. I am fine. I don't. You can shut my door for me. It was very good. And you could just like, they were just coming down like one at a time on each side. Oh, the door is shutting. That's, it was uh, very creepy. Oh, my God. And this... Oh, and this is School Intentions! intentions. <laughs> That's good. I love it. I That's love our tangents. Start. Yeah. And today's episode we're calling uh, Tragedy Plus Time. Yes. Which is uh, Carol Burnett, the, the famous, beautiful, right. wonderful Carol Burnett. Well, technically... Definition of comedy. It was her mother's definition. That's what she said. Oh. Well, I looked it up because I was like... 
Yeah, that having mm, said it, isn't she? No, there are other people, but oh, it's wait. it's in question who said it uh, first. But her mother always said that to her, and we also like Carol Burnett better. We than love Carol people. Burnett, and she just so, won like a lifetime achievement. Award. I know, so, so she's, let's give it to her. Yeah, she's the one. It was her mom that said it. <laughs> So, yes. Yeah. I'm not comedy really sure. Comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah, comedy is tragedy plus time. And I guess it, it's, it's we use it for this because, I mean, I, mm-hmm. my story, which we'll get to in a little bit, is certainly, I don't know that the there's tragedy? any. tragedy? I don't know that it's, there's much funny about it, but it is certainly tragedy plus fucking time because right. that shit's been like hundreds of years in the making and it's fucked up. Yeah. But your story. I get the comedy. I love it. So, Tell okay. me all about it. Tell I was going to do... I was looking at something else, which I'm going to do eventually, so I don't want to tease it. I'm just going to tease that there's going to be another one. Ha <laughs> ha, there's... No, I'm, I'm not held accountable for anything. Um, but I was looking at one, and then I uh, was in the car, and I was listening to the podcast My Favorite Murder, which so I fucking, fucking love. Good. They're so great. So good. Now, I had not started listening to them until after we started this podcast, mm. and I was telling our friend, Brina, yeah. who uh-huh. is amazing, and we love her, she's and she's wonderful. the best, and I was tell- we were telling her about it, and she's like, it kind of sounds like My Favorite Murder, and I think you guys would like that, and then I listened, and I was like, I fucking do like that, and I didn't realize how much like their format we punched my eyes again you did (laughs) this is why we're like my favorite murder because i infuriate you (laughs) no um he just crunches his eyes a lot and i'm always like why are you crunching your eyes in front of a microphone my dentist always tells me not to crunch eyes and i like to live dangerously well the microphone is telling you not to crunch the eyes Uh, i think the microphone really wants me to because it really likes it it. picks it up it It does it picks it up the crunched eyes yeah anyway sorry so my favorite murder yes so in their most recent episode they were talking about um the murder of it was a murder yeah Yeah. it's always a murder or the it's really the death of um famous uh hollywood star silent and then into speakies and she worked with laurel and hardy I can't remember Thelma, something. I don't know. Thelma Todd, Thelma. I don't know. Fuck, How did she I can't die? remember. How did she die? She died in her car, and they don't know if it was a suicide or a murder, but it was oh, a I carbon monoxide. I don't think I know this story. You should listen to the episode. It's great. It's a okay. Episode. On it. Anyway, they were talking about the comedy store, and there was some mix-up about what the history of the comedy store was, and I was like, you know what? I've heard so much about it being haunted, but not a lot of specifics about the history, and not a lot about the specifics about. The hauntings necessarily mm. you know you have shows here and there that will have stuff on it but i don't i've never had heard it all put together mm. so that is what i did i didn't know the comedy yeah. store had a rep for being haunted oh my god I mean, it makes sense because comedians for all their comedy like the, the comedy especially stand-up comedians like nine times mm-hmm. out of ten that they, they that their comedy comes from a great deal of pain so you're talking about a concentration of a mm-hmm. lot of people with really hard lives behind them uh so much come cocaine. to this so a lot of so cocaine. much cocaine a lot yeah. of cocaine. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> All that is to say. I'm doing the comedy store. Yay! In Los Angeles, California. Tell us about the Booger Sugar Shack. Okay, I will. The comedy store is located in the Sunset Strip area of Los Angeles in West Hollywood. It's literally on Sunset Boulevard, and the building has been home to various entertainment venues since it was very first built. Hmm. Inside the three-story building, there are two showrooms, the original 99-seat theater and a significantly larger main stage that seats about 450 people. Mm. Or exactly 450 people. 
one of those things. <laughs> Depends on their size. Go there, count, get back to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are some people that could fit two to a seat. So That's then, true. You know, it's, no judgment. Just don't tell the fire marshal. <laughs> there are backstage dressing rooms for both stages, a basement storage area below the stage. Fuck a basement. And Spe- especially a theater basement. Mm-hmm. Spe- like, capital fuck a theater basement. Yeah. Uh, there's a first, uh, the, the, what was it? A basement storage area below the stage and the first floor, a kitchen and an annex off of the kitchen. Offices are located in the second and third floors of the building. That's kind of an idea of the building. Okay. And that, like what you said about the theater, theaters are always super fucking haunted too. Just like by nature, you have a lot of emotional people, yeah. right? In that space. A lot of intense experiences go there, yeah. go on there. And then you have a basement, which is <laughs> awful. Always haunted. You have those two things together. It's like a beacon for ghosts. It's its own portal. Yeah. I've decided. <laughs> and, and you got to think about like this. A lot of people want to pursue a career in, in entertainment, but mm-hmm. they're kind of held back by their own fear. Maybe in death, since all fear reduces to you know fear right. of death, really. Maybe once they're dead, they get over their fear and they go, fuck it, I'm going to go to the comedy store and see if there's a way to make a career out of this in the afterlife. <laughs> it's possible maybe you maybe or theaters i mean maybe that's what i'm just saying that right. i could see myself being like you know i never tried i never went out for hamlet in life but by god oh my gosh i'll yeah. go haunt a theater well it's only been the comedy store since the early 1970s mm. but it has a pretty pretty decent history uh, i love how you said pretty so prettily pretty horrible <laughs> oh awfully sordid history and i love it it's becoming a sound time musical it is get ready <laughs> Um, everything in my life becomes a Sondheim musical. Uh, Nothing me, wrong with that. Let me randomly change keys for no reason. Uh, so the, it's a very popular stand-up comedy venue for those who don't know. It promotes up-and-coming comics and uh, well-seasoned talent as well. Tons of comics got their start at the comedy store, including in no particular order, except they're alphabetical. Because how do you rank comedians <laughs> except alphabetically? Yeah. Tim Allen Sandra Bernhard, Jim Carrey, Dave Chappelle, Andrew Dice Clay, Rodney Dangerfield, Whoopi Goldberg, Andy Kaufman, Michael Keaton, Sam Kinison, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Howie Mandel, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, Gary Shandling, and of course, Robin Williams. I don't know any of those people. That's a lie. <laughs> that Were they in books? Damnable lie. Did they write books? Yes. I'm no, of course I know them. That's awesome. That is quite a pedigree. I know, and that's not and all. I've of always them. heard that the, the people that like make it big after they're actually incredibly loyal to their roots, and they will go usually, back there when yeah. they can, which says something about the venue, right? Because um, most, I imagine, most comedians can't wait to get the fuck out of that circuit. Yeah, well, and they they go and they try new material as well. Mm. Um, But, you know, there's some drama there, which we'll get into in a minute. Mm. But I can't, there's so many people that started there, I can't include them all. So if I did not include someone that you felt needed to be included, I'm sorry, it was totally written on my page and I just skipped it because I'm old and my eyes are getting tired. I take the whole two hours of this podcast to read all the names. Yeah. That's awesome, though. Yeah, really cool. Uh, The history of the comedy store. In 1870, the Sunset Strip area was just getting its wee baby West Hollywood start. From 1870 all the way until 1984, it was technically not a part of the city of Los Angeles jurisdiction. Which meant all kinds of illegal shit was going down. (laughs) They weren't held to L.A. laws. It was like the Juarez. Yeah. Of Los Angeles. Exactly. (gasps) Anything could happen. Um, it was literally a gangsta's paradise. 
Thank you. Literally. Literally. It's where gangsters go when they die. I mean, it actually, the mob, not that it exists. <laughs> uh, the mob was fucking everywhere. There oh, was. Oh, so you mean, when you say paradise, you mean like pair of dice. I, all of bum, it. Bum, 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 bum. I should fucking do a routine there. You should. Why aren't you at the comedy stores when I'm asking myself? Because <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Mm. <laughs> that's the only, that's the only thing that's going to get me up. Only on like stage. 30% of those people are dead. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. There was Sorry. gambling during prohibition. There was alcohol and the nightclubs were the legal businesses that gave you an excuse to go do all of the other fine, fun crime things. Let's go do crime. They're called and face dance. businesses. Yes, and they, yeah, probably offered significant money laundering opportunities as well. Yeah. So the original building was built by a man named William Wilkerson. Why the fuck do we care? Well, this guy works. <laughs> <laughs> I care. The you name alone care. sounds amazing. Yeah, you do care because it's a name. Uh, <laughs> and you're so good at names. I fucking, I, he's always like, this person, this name of this person. And I'm like, <laughs> You mean the guy face. with hat? Yes. Yeah. So be like, his Man name was Mick Hatterson? Oh, that guy. The guy with the hat. Got it. Uh, so William Wilkerson. He worked in film and invested in real estate, mainly nightclubs, hotels, and restaurants. You might remember him best as the guy who first published The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah! It was William's column, Billy's List, <gasps> that listed suspected commie sympathizers, helping yes. initiate the Red Scare and leading to Hollywood's blacklist. Oh, shit. He was basically, he was McCarthy's bitch. Yeah, he yeah. was a dick. He was a total dick. Yeah, but yay for this building. Well, yeah, for the That's well. exciting. <laughs> Not but everyone he made this can building. be nice. He, you know, bad people do good things. So they, they build amazing every once buildings. In a while. They, they, yeah. Um, oh, God. Okay, cool, cool. So, I mean, cool, but not cool. Right. Yeah, no. Uh, uh. The, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to feel. I know. So many, so many feelings. Uh, that original building was built in the 1930s as a nightclub that he called Ciro's. C-I-R-O. Apostrophe S. Ciro's. Oh, the possessive. Uh, yes. It's Ciro's place. Okay. I don't know who Ciro was. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that was his mob name. Could be. <laughs> this is, this is uh, Ciro's Stinky Socks. Yeah. I like it. I like it. It was specifically built for the rich and famous, and they went there in droves. We're talking Marilyn Monroe, Bogey and Bacall, Sidney Poitier, the oh. Rat Pack, George Burns and Gracie Allen. Everyone who was anyone oh, went to that Burns fucking Burns and Allen, place. I love them. Yeah, they were there. Of course, at the time, the Mafia, specifically Mickey Cohen. Oh, shit. The underworld boss of the Sunset Strip uh-huh. was involved in everything. And it is assumed Wilkerson had some deals with Cohen because he had several clubs on the Strip. And you couldn't do that at the time without working some deals. Mm-hmm. Commies are bad. Mafia, yeah, might as well. It's funny how, like, the mob is, like, the natural conclusion of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so commies are That's like, no, commie, ba- I mean, I'm sure people argue, but to me, it seems like the mafia is like, this is, this is the free hand of the marketplace. Right, yeah. <laughs> doing its work. And this free hand is going to break your legs. Like the well, whole I time I was going. doing this, I was like, there's going to be some deals. You got to make there's some gotta deals. There's going to be deals, right? Yeah. But for all I know, Commies are bad. Mafia's got, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> for, all I do Mickey, for all I know, Mickey Cohen sounded like, hey, you want to work with me? You got to do deals. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's he has something to prove because he had a shitty voice, and so he became a gangster, and right. he won. He won. He absolutely won. Like he became like one of the most affluent, most influential, terrifying, terrifying. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, they, those those things go hand in hand when you're 
top boss. Yeah. He had, so he had a brothel that was right next door to Ciro's, and it was from the 1920s through, the, through to the 50s. So remember, it's not until the 80s that it was under L.A. jurisdiction. That's a long-lived brothel. Uh-huh. Wild, wild fucking west. Literally. Mm, so, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Besides getting the obvious cut from the club's profits, very mafia. Oh, you want to be here? You want us to not, you know, break your legs? It's a great place. It's a shame if something would happen to it. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you give me uh, 10% to like protect could, you uh, from I me? I could, uh, could build a brothel <laughs> on the other side. Really drive down the property values. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, Wilkerson didn't want to suffer the consequences. Uh, Cohen's headquarters was actually also in an upstairs office room at Ciro's. So his headquarters were in that building. I'm well, I mean, to... what is he going to do? Work out of the brothel? It's so it's too baller. Noisy. It's so baller. I, I want to have a, mo- a mob headquarters in, on top of like a theater. <laughs> a <laughs> comedy club? Oh, no, no. It was just a, it was just a nightclub. Nightclub. That's so yeah. cool. I'm Crazy. sorry. I'm like, it's so glamorous. It's fabulous. It is. Because back so then, glamorous. everything, everybody, you know... Fucking, they wore bras every day. It was a big deal. <laughs> and not just bras, like the uncomfortable bras. Right, they bras girdles. designed by men. Men wore girdles. Like <laughs> men wore my men. People showed up. And I lo- I'm glad I don't have to do it, but I really like the idea of it. Uh, okay, so the basement was dedicated to taking care of unpleasant business. Fuck a basement. Fuck, Fuck a basement. A basement. Every Especially time. this one. Because it had all the usual trappings. A killing and torture room, an abortion clinic, which was most likely an abortion or else clinic, um, and it probably became both at several times, abortion and or else because of the abortion, because they weren't legal at the time, uh, which is why they should stay legal so people aren't dying. You know, no one knows how many people were murdered in that basement during this time period. It's rumored there were a few botched abortion victims, and after one woman died, the nurse who performed it was subsequently murdered by the victim's boyfriend. Oh, shit. Yeah. Of course, there's no evidence of this, because mafia. Oh, yeah. They're like, yeah. But it for sure happened. Um, it was bad. It was very, very bad. And until up until the 60s, when the venue changed to a rock and roll club, incidentally, where the birds were discovered. You know, Mr. Tambourine Man. Oh, I thought William Shatner did that song. Well. He does a version of it. I wouldn't call it a song. It's more like the it's idea. It's a version. Yeah. It's, it, well, in that I have an aversion to it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're on a hired, roll you're on a roll i'm just it's the comedy store i want to bring my egg game yeah i'll totally edit that in totally it's gonna happen oh my god please do yeah. everybody just tell them i did it um i'll so listen then, eventually <laughs> uh and also crosby crosby stills an ash everybody knows them Oh, like yeah. Bing Crosby? No, <laughs> wasn't he dead by then? Uh, not not by the sixties, I don't think. Oh no, 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 but no, you're right. Yeah, I think he died. This is a tangent that's unnecessary. Okay, that's, well, then he, yeah, Bing Crosby was a weird guy. Yeah. So okay. Sorry. 1972, the Comedy Store was opened by comedians Sammy Shore and Rudy DeLuca. It included a 99 seat theater, the original, and as a result of a divorce settlement, Sammy Shore's ex wife Mitzi Shore, who mm-hmm. is also Polly Shore's mother. Did you not know that? I know. Did you not know that? Uh, no, I didn't um, know. I didn't know. I so, didn't think Polly Shore like had a mother. I thought he just sprang fully formed from like a cabbage leaf. Well, I haven't talked to him. Maybe he feels very ignored by her. I don't know. <laughs> it's possible. But he does. He's, an he's an very actor. cabbage patch kitty. Okay, he, he is. Well, he's very yeah. Well, garbage pail kitty. 
Six of one, half a dozen of the other. That's where I was going. Uh, so basically, they got a divorce, and he didn't want to have to pay more in uh, alimony. alimony. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, you can have this club. So she was like, cool, let me do it. And it was a really good decision on her part. Uh, she started running it in 1973, so basically a year after they started it. And she was able to buy the building in 1976. She is the one who renovated and expanded the club to include that main stage. It was, uh, like the un- other venues, a huge hit. Of course, being on the Sunset Strip doesn't hurt. Like That's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh, in 1974, it even hosted the wedding of Liza Minnelli and Jack Haley Jr. His father was the Tin Man <gasps> from... Uh, uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. And of course, her mother was Dorothy, Judy Garland. I am surprised that the Tin Man married a woman. Well, everybody did in those days. That, fair. (laughs) Do we need to talk about Liza's father? Uh, Let's just, let's be honest about it. We keep circling around. We keep, like, these people have a lot to say Mm -hmm. in the stories we we bring to this podcast. Because this is, like, the third or fourth time we've brought up uh, Dorothy Gale. Judy uh, Garland. Garland. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Because she's so fucking amazing. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure getting the two of them married seemed a good idea at the time. But, of course, they've divorced since then, and she's married other people. Um who were also most likely uh, not not cisgender. So, <laughs> surprise! Um, uh, this wedding had everything. I like in my mind. I, I see, just think so. Dorothy's mom and the Tin Man are getting married. Dorothy's daughter. Dorothy's daughter. Oh, sorry. Like, sorry. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Let's Li- yeah. was her daughter. Dorothy and the Tin Man's children are getting married. Dorothy's. Yeah. And they did this whole theme where they made it look like it was still Ciro's and they covered the comedy store sign and the cops at one point had to block off Sunset Boulevard because it got so fucking crazy. And it was one of those things, too. Everybody was there. Do you want to hear some of the people that were there? Elizabeth Taylor, (gasps) Sammy Davis Jr., Cher... Bob fucking Fosse, Johnny Carson, Goldie Hawn. Fosse was probably the the the, choreo- the choreographer of the yeah the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, Goldie Hawn, Cesar Romero, Priscilla wow. Presley. I really want you to recreate this wedding when you guys get married. Well, some of these people are dead, but that doesn't mean we can't invite them. I don't care. <laughs> this yeah. is a ghost story podcast. They need to come. <laughs> I oh would love to have Sid Caesar at my wedding. I know. I would love to talk to dead Elizabeth it'll be Taylor. Like, show of shows. Uh, <sighs> anyway. That's another room. A girl can dream. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, So one of my favorite stories that I read about was Yakov Smirnov, who was also found by the comedy store. (laughs) If you don't remember him, you have to look him up. I love him. He's this Russian. In Russia, you don't become president. President becomes becomes you. you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's great. And um, that is is Yakov. If you hear those jokes, that is from Yakov. And... uh, He's great, and he got there in the mid-1980s and uh, was given some stage time and a small room in exchange for taking care of some maintenance duties like plumbing and carpentry and that kind of shit. He was not a partier, though, unlike literally everybody else there. (laughs) So he was usually in bed by 11 p.m. When he came downstairs in the morning, he was always very confused as to why the wall mirror had been taken down, smeared with white powder, and left on the large table in the middle of the room. (laughs) He wondered, 
why would somebody take the mirror off the wall and eat powdered donuts off the mirror? (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Now, surely that's put on. Surely, after like one time, someone told him, oh yeah, that's where we do our cocaine. Eventually they told him, but for a little while he didn't know, and he just thought it was very strange American. I guess I could also, like, I would love to hear them fucking with him about their Uh excuse. Right. Like, oh yeah, well, we were doing like a... We were. I was teaching Liza how to ski. Ski. We were skiing in here on uh, yeah. powder. And you need sugar. a mirror so you can really see your form from below. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just on a side note, and I read this when I, I didn't realize this, but apparently Sam Kennison was really big on peeing on people. Like, if you he was mad at you, he would pee on you, and people saw him peeing on people a lot. There are so many Trump jokes in this little segment mm. that I just feel I shouldn't even make them because they're too obvious. Right, and he's not funny. So, um, <laughs> in 1979, things got a little dramatic. So, she started running it in 73. This is 79. Mitzi Shore always said that the club was a training ground for young comics and for more established comics to try out new material. There were usually agents and talent scouts in the audience, so it provided a great place for comedians who'd never been seen before Hmm. to get a chance and for all of the performers to book professional work if they were good enough. Makes sense. It's a big fucking deal. Like, if you want to run a club, that's what you want it to become eventually for these people. It's like a huge, like... Opportunity. A big testing ground, proving ground. Yeah, and so to her, the Hmm. opportunity meant... I'm not paying you. Yeah. And the comic started to see she was making quite a bit of money. And she made extensive uh, uh, changes into the building. She had a full staff. They were all paid. And it seemed like she was making a significant amount of money. So uh, several of the comics got together, several, a whole buckload of comics got together and held a six-week strike against the comedy store. Specifically against the comedy store. Yes. Jay Leno and David Letterman were even on the picket line. Uh, however, and, and they weren't fans of each other. No. Well, they weren't they, at the time. This was in the 70s. I don't right? think they were even then. Well, has anyone ever been a fan of Jay Leno? Like, literally. Jay Leno. Well, see. <laughs> and whoever sells him those cars. Yeah. So loves him. But anyway. Um, but anyway, uh, Gary Shandling and Yakov oh, did not. They Gary crossed Shandling. the picket line, though. <gasps> what? So it was. It was. I could see Yakov doing it because he seemed kind of naive. Well, there there wasn't an actual union, and not so some Canadians, people thought no. agreed with her and were like, no, like you know, w- because of this. You know, she can afford to promote it or she wow. can afford to do these things. And if she paid us, she wouldn't be able to. And then other people were like, look at how, look at her fucking car. She can afford to pay us. Right. So it took six weeks. Um, and so much drama. I had no idea. Like, that's, I'm not going to, that kind no of breaks too. my heart that Gary Shandling crossed the picket line because I love Gary Shandling. Right. He was I amazing. And I was like, I mean, I, you know, but he, this pr- is also, he probably had his reasons, but right. I'm just saying, like, wow, that's a, that hit me somewhere where I'm like, oh, you crossed well, the picket you think, line. Well, too, like, these, Especially these, like, these particular people had personal relationship with Mitzi. So it was like turning your back on your friend and being like, you're not being cool. And not only am I going to be like, you need to fucking change, I'm going to make it public. And so some people were more comfortable doing that, maybe more rage fueled. And I don't think Gary Shandling is... I never thought of him as a rage fuel human. Didn't, didn't see Where David head. Letterman and Jay Leno, I could totally see being, you know, Leno being I could money. See, I could see the two of them being, I could see the two of them being a little more hot-headed about it. And I yeah. could see Gary Shandling being more of a, yeah. like a um, damage control guy. Right. And I yeah. think that. Not that I know that, any of these people. That's no. just my impression. But. Right. 
Um, but I think what that shows, though, is that it was a conflicted environment. You know, yeah, definitely. Because Mitzi had helped a lot of them. The comedy store had been there for a lot of well, them. Yeah, and at what point do you turn on that? You know? Well, and that's a good question. Like, she wasn't necessarily, she wasn't paying them, but but she was, at that point, the comedy store had become such a, a breeding ground for opportunities for mm-hmm. these people that if they were good, it's like, you show up here. So I, I get it, but at the same time, I guess... As an artist, hearing the, hearing oh, we're someone, giving you the opportunity. Well, because we hear that all the time. Yeah. But to be fair, we hear it from people who are not the comedy store. Right. Like, we hear it from people that, like, and it's 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 a double-edged sword. On the one hand, yeah, it's like, no, you don't have to pay me because if I can, if I can play here then yes, the reputation of having played here will absolutely translate into right. something. But it's when you hear it as an actor or as a performer, you hear it from someone who's just trying to tell you that, no, at some point, this mm-hmm. place that's not going to pay you will be will have a reputation that will translate to money down the road. Then that's not good. Because, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, your landlord doesn't give a fuck where you played. Right. They don't They don't care about your opportunities. No. Yeah. No. They don't, and, ex- they, don't, they don't accept opportunities themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And she also felt like she had been cultivating the talent. Um, Very true. And interestingly, she was not she was not supportive of female comics. She didn't think that women had what it took to make it in the comedy industry. And a lot of people mm. took that to mean they they couldn't she didn't think they were funny. She just didn't think they were hardcore enough. And I think that's you look back on that time and you look back on it with this Me Too era, and I think for her, it was just like, women shouldn't be in this industry because of how they will be treated by these men who are fucking yeah, pigs. No shit. Right? I mean, as depraved as the industry could be. Uh-huh. And you have to wonder if maybe she thought by by posing that challenge, if mm-hmm. she thought like only the, the, the people, the women specifically, that could to tell me, like, yeah. she was looking for someone to go, fuck you, bitch. That's who she knew would be strong enough to do it. So maybe by posing that challenge, she was trying to kind of weed out the people that expected, you know. Yeah. Well, just it's just of, a different time. You just had to yeah. roll with your sexual harassment and just make the most of it, Ooh. I guess. But it's she true. also, it's true. to it's her horrible, credit, but it's true. Yeah. To her credit, she did start a separate club that was just for women. And she went out of her way to cultivate uh, a female talent. LGBT talent. So she was very, she wanted diverse talent. Um, so maybe as the industry changes, she, she, she felt more comfortable with, with letting. Yeah. She got more a lot of flack for, for what she said about women, but I just look back on it now and she seemed to be the mother hen of these people. And it's all, I don't know. And it she seems wasn't so like much, she might have just been protecting. Women. Like she wasn't protecting the industry from the influx of women or LGBTs. She was protecting women then. and LGBTs from the industry. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. And this is all assumption, and I want to believe the best yeah. of her because she does I mean, do a lot. Motivations are going to be complicated, but. Yeah. Um, such, although such this. drama, such drama. It's very it. dramatic, yes. Uh, For being a comedy store. <laughs> I know, right? Eventually, she relented and agreed to paying uh, $15 per set to the actors. So she gave them something. How long was a typical set? Do we know it was like 15, 15 minutes? minutes yeah. 10, 15 minutes? That's, so a dollar a minute? That's, that's not bad. That's not, I mean, that's not that's bad. That's not great, but I mean, in the not, in the 70s. But if that, but you know, again, if that's a 15 minute set that can get you a, you know, a two picture yeah. deal. Or a shot on The Tonight Show, because The know. Tonight Show would scout there too. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a big hmm. deal. Um, Interesting. More importantly, though, that settlement set a precedent and resulted in New York City comedy clubs beginning to pay their talent as well. And other comedy clubs across the U.S. followed suit and comics suddenly started to get paid for their performances on on nightclub stages, not just on TV. So it was a it ended up being a big precedent. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Comics always did that for free. Yeah. Huh. 
Until then. Unless they were doing a show, I guess. Like what? Like the, the sort of yeah. specials they used to do. Yeah, like Rat Pack type yeah. stuff. Yeah. Huh. Um, wow. So I guess that makes sense of why Vegas became so big because you were paid to perform there, and that's why it became mm-hmm. the big draw. Yeah. For people that were like, ah, no, this is this is hey, awesome. This is where I can do what I've always been doing, but I can finally get paid. Yeah. Wow. And Without the bullshit. It. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and at the time, Vegas was very glamorous too. <laughs> it still is, I think. Well. There's still a lot. It's a it's a showbiz town. Like I, it's not what it used to be because right. I mean, ever since the mafia doesn't have the glamour yeah. it once did, I think. But even now, it's still very much a showbiz town. Like you can see yeah. some really awesome shit. In you Vegas. can also see weird families. I think that's always been the case, and as far as I'm concerned, that's well, also it hasn't just always good been theater. a destination for family for families. It has not been a family destination. No, that, at that's this true. point, it definitely was. That's not. that's it's true. like New York City. They're different. They're different. Um, That's just part of the show. Right. Now you can go to Times Square and see really, really shitty cosplay, and people will want you to pay to take their picture. I was there. I have to just, on an ass- I have to I fucking exactly say exactly what this. you're talking about, though. I was there uh, for New York Comic Con this past year. If you're ever, if you're in New York, if you're ever in New York in October, New York Comic Con, any of the Comic Cons, um, if you have anybody visiting, or if you are visiting at that time, go to the Comic-Con to take pictures, because number one, they'll do it for free, and number two, they are so much fucking better. The costumes are so very, much better. Very fucking I true. am spoiled from our experience, because when I went to Times Square, and I've been there before, but just going again, it's like, these are just shit. So basic. So basic. No. Oh, Not God. even basic. Basic sounds like they have like at least a fundamental understanding of the craft. Yeah. But no, yeah, no, I, it's terrible. You're so right. You're like I feel so strongly about that. that. The same thing with um Hollywood, uh, um, the Hollywood strip, the, 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 strip, yeah, the yeah. Hollywood strip. Yeah, the Hollywood strip. Gross. They're so no. awful. And like, are you Spider Man or just a crazy guy in pajamas? I don't right. really know. I don't understand. You're like the color schemes, not even. It's it's like the generic off brand version of all those characters. Where it's like, yeah, well, I it's, went there with a friend, and I love I love you, Angel, if you're listening. <laughs> and they're like, look, it's a strip, and I was like, these. This cosplay is just not exciting. We are, from our experience <laughs> on the on on at Comic Cons and and anime so cons spoiled. and whatever, like we are very ruined for I for know. cosplay on the street because yeah. we're like, yeah, no. When we see someone dressed up, we're like, mm, okay, right. but that fringe is off, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, does your light actually light up? Because if it yeah. doesn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it looks so like crazy. you ran out of one color and had to paint that other shoulder pad in a different color, but you thought, mm, okay, mm. sorry, color matching. Yeah, maybe light that on fire next yeah. time. Ace is the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I have to find out where I was. Sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just like Sorry. everybody in the business. That's right. Okay, so there was a comic whose name uh, was Steve Lubetkin. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. Uh, who had previously been a very close friend of Mitzi's. He was heavily involved in the strike, though. Mm. After the strike along with several other comedians that were um, instigators of the strike, he was no longer allowed to perform at the comedy club. Mm. And he begged Mitzi, but she wasn't having it. He only made $1,000 his last year. Um, So that year, feeling rejected and hopeless, on June 1st, 1979, so right after the strike, he was only 30 years old, but he jumped from the 14th floor of the Continental Hyatt house that was right next door to the comedy club. It appeared he had been aiming to hit the roof of the comedy club, but instead landed in the driveway. 
He did have a suicide note, and it stated, My name is Steve Lubetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. In his note, he blamed Mitzi for not letting him perform there. It was pretty intense. That's very, very sad. Yeah, very sad. And a tragic irony that even in his suicide, he didn't quite make it. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, wow, was Mitzi a witch? (laughs) She's like, you're not even going to land on the roof of this building when you kill yourself, motherfucker. Well, I feel like that. That's so sad. But I mean, like, it's such a. I don't mean to make light of suicide because it's always tragic, but it's it's always a bad decision. And to kill yourself because you couldn't perform. Like, ultimately, I feel like this guy. If he had a little more time to get over that horrible experience in his life, he'd been right. like, man, I can't believe I actually wanted to kill myself over that. It wasn't worth it. It just yeah. was not worth it. He was Be- only well, 30. He had his whole life ahead of him. Again, you think David Letterman and Jay Leno also crossed. Yes. Or, or were also picketing. Yes. So if they and a lot of other very famous people did, and if he just stuck with it mm-hmm. and, and, and pushed through, but he... Um, he could have gone assume. to New York yeah. and been paid. Yeah. Like, it's just, oh, it's such a bad idea to kill yep. yourself until you have all the information. And you don't ever have all the information until you've nope. lived your whole life. That's so true. That's so sad. Um, it's so sad. But it also goes to show you how comedy often comes from very dark dark places for these people. Like, mm-hmm. have they're, they're broken. Yeah. Just like we all oh, yeah. are, I guess. But but comedians especially tend to have, like, they, I feel like comedians tend to come from a breed of, of human that, has had a lot of shit to deal with and like more than mm-hmm. their fair of shit to deal mm-hmm. with and their only coping mechanism that works is to be able to laugh at it or to make other people laugh at it. It's right. like they I feel like comedians spend their whole life trying to beat humiliation to the punch. Yeah. Because they felt it too many times themselves. And it could be. It could be. I mean or just just a coping mechanism for no yeah. matter like it doesn't mean that every comedian has to have something tragic. But it's a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. and we all mm-hmm. have them. And when you can no longer laugh, mm. what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, so. Oh, that's tragic. Steve will take us to the hauntings. Are you ready, Michael? I'm so ready. Okay. So he, of course, haunts the comedy store. Several staff members and comedians claim that someone pulls pranks on them from time to time that are very reminiscent of the tragic comedian. Steve was known as a jokester who loved to have fun with the club's employees. He, or at least someone who looks remarkably like him, has been spotted quite often observing new comedians as they perform their acts. Steve has remained a part of the Comedy Store family, whether Mitzi liked it or not. Ooh. Yeah. And Mitzi passed away uh, April 1st, I think. No, April 11th. I was like, first. That's, That'd be great. That would be hilarious. You're like, <laughs> April um, Fool's, she actually passed away on the 11th. Right. Uh, which is my mother's birthday. Also funny. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> April 11th she, of last year, she passed away. Oh, wow. Um, that recently. Yeah. So Did she ever have? Uh, well, I, mean, I don't want to like. I don't know if she had. Does she ever have any experiences I around? Haven't she ever read anything about, about that? She probably um, wouldn't want to talk about that kind of thing because it right. seems to kind of, you know, it's a but comedy you club. You don't want to talk about ghosts at a comedy club. Having owned it since 73. Yeah. That. Like she's longer than show up we there. have been alive. Yeah. I would love for her just to go regulate on the other ghosts. That would be so amazing. Anyway, let's hear about those. Um, <laughs> please, please. So besides please. Steve, there are a minimum of five spirits that hang around the building. All are assumed to originate from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, probably as a result of nefarious mob activities. Mm, well, they had the murder basement rooms. Right, murder basement, abortion basement. 
They become most active when the place is quiet, especially in the early morning hours, though they have been known to be active during different times of the day and evening hours as well. Shit is crazy up in the comedies. Sam Kinison in particular. If you don't know him, Google him. Look him up on YouTube. He's oh, fucking amazing. Hand to my heart. Um, hand to my heart. He had several experiences. Really? For some reason, <gasps> the spirits seemed to dislike him. Now, he had... He was a pretty polarizing comedian. He like was. He was a game changer. A lot of comedians living hated him. Right. Well, did you know that he started off as like a preacher? Yes. Fire and brimstone's yes. preacher. Yes. Very much so. So, and that's kind of that how he his, created his He translated his act. that yeah. style into his act. Into yeah, his act. It, was, it was brilliant. Yeah. And so a lot of the assumptions are maybe these mobster ghosts were like, get out of here with your fire and your brimstone. Uh, yeah. It, it or maybe seems he was like, too extreme even for them. Because yeah. Kennison was was one of those really provocateur comedians, like mm-hmm. one of the of of that generation. He was probably the top provocateur. Like even George Carlin, who he was kind of a more or less contemporaneous with. Yeah. Uh, like what Sam Kennison was far more angry, far more in your face about it. And it was kind of a new thing at the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of comedians felt like, oh, this guy's not even funny. He's just fucking pissed off. Yeah. So like, it, it, anyway, sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm, but okay. that's, so that's fascinating that he yeah. had so much shit. While he was there. Mm-hmm. He, it seemed like they went out of their way to derail his show. For instance, sometimes the lights on stage would flicker during his performances. On other occasions, the sound system would go out. One night, as soon as he stepped onto the stage, a swarm of angry voices began to fill the room. The voices were seething as they repeated the same exclamation over and over. It's him. It's him. Whoa. The bitter tirade grew louder and louder as the comedian attempted to get through his material. Everyone present that night could hear the voices as they echoed throughout the room, but no one could find the source of the disturbance. Whoever the hecklers were that night, they were invisible to both the performer and the audience. Eventually, Kinison demanded. Right? Eventually, Kinison demanded that they show themselves. And at that precise moment, when he was like, show yourselves, or whatever it was he said, uh, every light in the showroom went out, and the entire theater was plunged into complete darkness. A whole entire stage, a whole entire room of people, complete darkness. Can I speak to that for just a moment? Because Sam Kinison came from this very evangelical <laughs> Can you background. Speak? Yes. <laughs> so I'm just like, no, I just, Michael. I don't want to take us down this this rabbit hole because I I, I know you've got more to we tell. We should but... have named this podcast Rabbit Hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but Sam Kinison came like from a very uh, um, religious, religious, even specifically evangelical fundamentalist background, right? And he rejected all of that. Uh, as uh-huh. he grew up because that was and a lot of I imagine a lot of uh, his comedy and certainly a lot of the pain that drove his comedy because his comedy when you, his his comedy is angry his comedy is fucking fed up with, with hypocrisy bullshit. and bullshit mm-hmm. and he's railing against it and so that had to come from a, a serious schism in his own psyche where mm-hmm. he has to realize like the person that believed all this shit is dead to me but not dead because you right. can't just get rid of that person nope. that you were and so maybe in some way he attracted all this kind of Unearthly criticism because he was like, because he couldn't quite, that was like a kind of a physical uh, uh, paranormal manifestation of his own like 
split psyche as yeah. it were because he was dealing with like I don't want to believe that shit anymore but it's still hounding me even though I'm trying to act out against all the things I think are bullshit even at his death his brother said that he was talking to someone who wasn't there <sighs> and saying like I don't want to die I'm not ready to go and then oh, whatever he God. was talking to he started to just say okay okay and it was like he kind of understood and accepted he was it was it mm. it's crazy insane um, and creepy I have goosebumps again Rah! Uh, yeah, so Sam Kinison, quite a few things. Jay Moore claimed to have also experienced a ghost, saying he always felt cold on the right side of his face when on stage. He once blamed the ghost for the audience's failure to laugh and stopped his act to say, Get the fuck out of here, ghost. <laughs> You're killing the room. Right, and then everybody laughed and it made it okay. That's weird. <laughs> okay. The ghost is like, just use me. You gotta yeah, use me in I'm your comedy. That's all you. I want. Uh, comedians Joey Gaynor and Blake Clark, who you would know if you saw him. He does a lot of Adam Sandler films. He's the guy that filled in for Ernest, who did Slinky on Toy Story, and you know he passed away. Yeah, yeah. Before Jim, Varney, Jim, Jim Varney. Jim Varney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, they were really good friends, and he took over oh. for Jim Varney when Jim Varney passed away as Slinky, oh. the dog, the dog. The slinky dog. In Toy Story. Yeah. yeah. So oh, I miss Jim Varney. Sorry, that just made me. I know. I Ernest, know. Ernest Saves Christmas. We just so, watched it a few weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's one yeah. of my favorite Christmas so films. Good. <laughs> uh, Blake Clark is his name. And again, Blake look him Clark. up. You'll okay. be like, oh, that guy. Uh, he was not only a comedian, but he was also a security guard at the comedy store. And he and Joey both witnessed a black form in the basement that was at least seven feet tall whoa float across the floor then uh, they did the logical thing and got the fuck out of there <laughs> they ran all the way up the stairs and out of the comedy store onto sunset boulevard and then they were like maybe this is excessive <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe this is excessive maybe we should get our shit together and again. yeah and uh they went in and they went back down the stairs and saw whatever it was crouched in a corner when still it, there? It was still there, and when it sensed their presence, it slowly rose and headed mm. for them. Ah! I know! Oh, they ran away it. again, but not before noticing that the being had only a dark void where its face should have been. Oh my god, that's that's gonna give me fucking nightmares, yeah. Jamie. Yeah. Every time I get in front of an audience now, I'm gonna be looking for that fucking for that thing. Just Oh, no. <laughs> Once, <laughs> at 3 a.m., Blake had to go into the basement to investigate noises that were so loud they could be heard upstairs. When he got down the stairs, Clark could hear a guttural growl emanating from somewhere in the showers. Showers. Shadows. Whatever. <laughs> they, they probably had showers down in the it basement, It sounded too, like the they were in days. a shower. You, know, you want to take a shower after you murder someone or abort a fetus. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Out of nowhere, he heard something strike the basement door so violently that it bowed outward. He described it as though something was pushing on the door with such force that it was actually bending the wood. Like it was trying to get out. Oh my fucking God. So he also he ran away again. <laughs> Which I support. <laughs> He's like, yep. What, I mean, what are you going to do at that point? I know. The wood of this door is bowing in. I'm a security guard, but I can't secure shit against this. Right. It's like, clearly shut in, in there for a reason. At this point. Yeah. This is not my responsibility. <laughs> yeah. On his last visit to the basement, he watched as a black piece of paper materialized from thin air gently touched his hand as it floated to the floor. And when he picked it up, there was one word on the paper. Blake, 
his name. That's so fucked up. <laughs> I know. How do you even like? How do you even work that into a set? How do you even work that <laughs> into a set? That's too fucked up. I know. So then he was like, "Fuck you, basement. I'm never going back here again." <laughs> Fuck you, seven foot tall dark entity that he just likes to leave me fucking aggressive, passive aggressive I- roommate notes. Like. <laughs> That no, I I just kind of want. Can one of the ghosts? Can this particular ghost just have a drum set that he plays rim shots with? And like that's that'd be the like real talk for a second. That'd be the ghost I was at the comedy store. I'd be the guy playing rim shots, but I'd do them at like they'd be the most badly timed rim shots. Right. That actually they'd actually steal the punchline. Right. I want someone who plays rim shots at like really terrifying moments so like the <laughs> the monster rises up and it goes to attack him and it's rim shot <laughs> it's like it makes it not as scary so maybe just, if you're in a situation just about, no we, i think we've just ruined rim shots forever i think now rim, rim shots like, are fucking terrifying from now on you just have a rim smash shot. cut to the funeral of the person that was in that room yeah right or just have a rim shot ready when you go on a ghost hunt and then anytime you're scared just Rim shot, and then it's like, ha ha, it's just a joke. <laughs> Rim shot. Oh, oh my That's god. It's just a bitch in white. It's hilarious. Uh... Yeah, so, um, poor Blake. It wasn't just the That's basement. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah, he came into contact with another of the club's resident ghosts one day when he was relaxing in a back room playing a video game by himself. I can only assume it was Atari because it was a long time ago. <laughs> He looked up to see a man dressed in a World War II bomber jacket standing across the room. He immediately realized something was off. His suspicions were confirmed when he attempted to speak to the man, but the image slowly faded away before completely vanishing without a trace. Later that same day, a woman working in one of the building's offices also encountered the man with the bomber jacket. When she saw him, he was hiding on the third floor, crouched in a corner with a look of terror on his face. He also disappeared right before her eyes. Oh. Keep in mind. The detail of them crouching and like hiding in terror is really disturbing. Yeah. So and that's the second time because the, the big tall thing was crouching. In the, in the basement. In the yeah. basement. And now the bomber jacket wearing ghost is crouching, crouching on the third floor. What the fuck is go- that? Well, keep in mind on the third floor was Mickey's office. Oh. So they assume he was killed there. Yeah. Um, was waiting for a meeting with I Mickey know. Cohen. And of course, I can't but help. I can't help but think. I wonder who got that jacket. I bet it was a really great bomber jacket. World War II bomber jacket. Come on. I mean, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, like the, if someone was like murdering this poor guy, like they're not just going to like, yeah, they're going to take the jacket and wear it. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, there's right. your murderer. Go through anyone who has the bomber anyone jacket. Anyone whose grandfather has a bomber jacket in their closet is a suspect. Suspect. Um, great grandfather, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry. Great grandfather. Great, great. Kids. I don't know. Uh, Blake has also told of one night when he saw a chair glide 20 feet across an otherwise empty stage as though being pushed by unseen hands. He and Joey Gaynor, of previous basement mm. running fame, also witnessed chairs, which had only moments earlier been in their proper places around dining tables, stacked on top of each other in the middle of the room. Joey demanded at one point that the spirits come out and make their presence known. In response, an ashtray rose up off one of the tables and hurled itself directly at his head. It narrowly missed him hitting, uh, narrowly missed hitting him dead in the face and instead smashed against the wall behind him. 
Yeah, if these are the ghosts, if these are the ghosts of failed comedians, don't ever ask them to make themselves known. It's kind of yeah. a sore point. I couldn't point. do it in life. I can't do it <laughs> it's, in death. It's a sore point. Yeah. That made you don't fucking know who I am. <laughs> uh, so apparently chair shit happens a lot because another comedian, Lou Deck, remembered entering a room to find 400 chairs piled up to the ceiling and then mysteriously returning to place a few moments later. Yeah, one of the spirits of the comedy store is said to be that of a woman who is frequently heard in the showroom. She is known to whisper to anyone she encounters. She is never seen, but her voice is well known to many of the people who work in the club. She doesn't make people feel unsafe or unwelcome. It's more like she just wants to be around the living. It is assumed she is a victim of one of the many botched abortions that had been performed in the basement decades earlier. Mm. The reason for this theory is that, at times... Her agonizing screams can be heard erupting from beneath the floor. And remember, she is heard so often that people recognize her voice. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. That's terrible. It oh, is. Oh, Several oh, male God. entities frequently appear in the main room of the club. They seem to be acting as security. They are known to walk around inspecting the crowd and keeping an eye on the stage. They are said to always be dressed in clothing from the 1940s. The men hang around for a while until they are satisfied that everything is on the up and up. And once their job is done, they fade out of sight. Which is very convenient. That's very nice to yeah. have that, that little, you know, security guard. Mm-hmm. Like the extra, like, paranormal bouncers, basically. Yeah. And, like, you know they're totally mafioso bouncers. Oh, absolutely. So they know their shit. Yeah. They're on it. Yeah. Uh, there are cold spots. Sometimes the temperature drops so much you can see your breath. Ooh. Servers report they've returned to a table they've just cleared to find it completely reset. Which is fucking awesome. Like, that's my kind of ghost. Could... So I get helpful. one that does laundry. That would be amazing. <laughs> can I, yeah, can I get just one that cleans you know the what? house? I'll do the laundry. If it could fold and put things up, that would be amazing. Fucking socks and underwear. I hate <laughs> fucking. I hate folding socks and underwear. I love having you, clean underwear and clean socks, but like it's if I could just your have a ghost underwear. Yeah, I gave up on it. What do you, do you just throw? It I off? just throw it into a into like a it's I'm, designated I'm box there. in the drawer. I'm getting there. I think yeah. I'll. I, I had to I like, choose my battles. I'm a little, I'm a little anal retentive about that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's men, and and I don't know. It's I have to. Also, have men's underwear like. is a lot easier to fold. This is true. Not that I fold jacks, but anyway, um, <laughs> the intercom acts up with workers getting buzzed by a non-existent extension. When they listen, all they hear is the sound of someone breathing heavily. In the main room, many employees have spotted a man in the back who they have nicknamed Gus. He is always dressed in a black suit, and most people assume he was one of Cohen's hitmen. With a name like Gus. Mm. In 1982, Dr. Taft and his UCLA parapsychology team, so he was like a psychic and he had this parapsychology team, they came to investigate the comedy store because of all of the activity. When they got to the backstage area by the dressing rooms, two coins fell up from the ceiling out of nowhere. When they got to the basement, the psychic Dr. Taff was suddenly overcome by agonizing pain, almost like someone was trying to break his legs. Yeah. And the coins, what a what a what a what? gangster touch. Like, no. go clean yourself up. Ching ching. Like yeah. Right. <laughs> oh. Uh, like, like that was a lot of money in Mickey Cohen's time. Uh-huh couple of coins. In 1994, so 12 years after this incident, a segment for the TV series Haunted Hollywood. Do you remember that? I do. Fucking loved it. Oh, yes. Um, Hypercaller, 94. Woo! <laughs> 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 it, it was filmed in the original main room, 
and Dr. Taff came along to watch the taping. He saw in the back of the room, while they were taping, three men that were all costumed in 1940s-style suits, including the fashionable wide lapels. After the filming, everyone packed up and started to leave. Taft walked up to the men who were still standing there, but then... They all just disappeared right in front of his face, too. <sighs> Fucking day players. I know. <laughs> they had a gig across town. Yeah. And I am I know there are more hauntings, but these are the major ones. Wow. These are the Those big are bullet so points. good. It's so good. I had no idea there was this much history. You and I are going to go to the comedy store <sighs> one day, and we're going to be the only ones in the audience. Like, someone really famous is going to be experimenting with a new set mm-hmm. there, and we're going to be the only ones in the audience totally facing away, like, looking at the rest of the house okay. like just looking for like the seven foot tall ghost or be like where's the basement can we sneak in the basement yeah and you, you, when you look at the history and you see how many uh comedians that are living and have passed away that have been committed to it mm-hmm. and and just really it has been such a major part of their lives it makes you wonder if they don't go back there it's their mecca it's their mecca and as a performer i mean i'm not a comedian but um but you know as a performer like you do you you develop very strong attachments to places where you've had these great experiences and there is nothing in the world like getting in front of an audience and feeling like you nailed it yeah whether it's a comedy a stand-up set or it's a it's a performance in a play or uh, you know singing it like you you get a real like because that's where you find as a performer that's where you discover who you are yeah that's when you get up there and when you have that feeling and it can go either way you can either get up there and be like this is where i learned that everything i dreamed about being is exactly what what i am like it can happen it can actually happen for me i have what it takes or you go up there and you learn the opposite either way like you don't walk away from that experience yeah without being changed fundamentally right so it makes perfect sense that people get attached that place it defined Mm -hmm. them in Mm -hmm. life like it was their mecca it was their and uh, of all the people that that it became successful. How many people went, especially such an LA thing that thought this is going to be my big chance. This is my big chance to make it. And then nothing happened yeah. and they didn't make it. So you wonder what those connections are like too. Uh, well, forever then, then they have that negative association where right. like that place forever became what barred them from mm-hmm. or what taught them the really like, hard lesson that it just like wasn't Steve. meant to be. Mm. Yeah. Poor so. Steve. But that that's my story. Oh, God. I mean, I jumped down that rabbit hole and just kept swimming. That was great. That yeah. was fu- I had no idea yeah. about like I knew I knew a thing or two about the comedy store, but I had no idea it had a rep for being haunted. And yeah. I didn't know. I knew the, that, but the I didn't stuff know. Stuff about detail. Sam Kennison really bothers me. Uh-huh. Really bothers me. Uh-huh. Because I, I feel a particular affinity with him as a comedian. Yeah. Like I just thought like he was one of my favorites. When I was very little, uh, he was one of the first comedians I was allowed to watch well, their special on television because my parents didn't know that he wasn't like R rated. So I was mm. like, ah, and so I watched it and I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. He's so angry and he's using swear words. And I love and, it. But I think yeah. it, he kind of contributed in some way, in some way that I really hadn't thought about until just now, like watching his act on yeah. like the old HBO specials he used to do before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and he died young and tragically. Yeah. But uh, watching those specials as a kid really kind of opened my brain mm-hmm. in a way that I, I didn't know. Yeah. So, yeah. What so that's a, a great fucking story. Yeah. The comedy yeah. store. Yeah, the comedy store. Woo. All right. I have to pee. And so then, do I. And, and let's we'll make some more drinks and Yay. then I'll do mine. Okay. And Dexter's <laughs> crying in the background, but we are back. He was so terrified of yeah. that last story. He was saddened. He was, he was saddened, saddened because we've and locked him out. We've locked him out. Yeah, he oh. might cry for a little. While. So mine, I chose. Well, I just happened upon it. I was I was reading several of of my many books on various haunted sites and cursed places and things like that. 
And I had never heard of this place before. And uh, But it's actually probably the... It, it takes place in Scotland. So mm-hmm. we're going to go to Scotland, specifically, specifically Edinburgh. Nice. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Um, and it is kind of there it, in terms of how popular and how well-known and how well-documented and how many people have experienced things at this place. It's kind of their version of Waverly Hills, but it is so much older. Right. So... We're going to start with a little story. Tell that is me, one of Michael. my favorite, like, holy fucking shit, that's goddamn creepy. Ooh, ooh. So. Is Yakov Smirnoff in it? It, it may have been him, for all I know. <laughs> uh, because we don't have names for mm-hmm. this particular one. So, uh, the story goes. So, let's set the stage. So, we're in Edinburgh, Scotland. Mm-hmm. The year is 1998. Okay. Where were you in 1998? College. Um, same. Mm-hmm. So. Same college. We didn't even know. That's true. <laughs> We didn't even know. So the year is 1998. It's Edinburgh, Scotland. And we are at a famous historical cemetery called Greyfriars Kirkyard. Kirkyard means churchyard, but I decided for throughout for the, our purposes, I'm going to keep calling it Kirkyard because I just like the Scottish word. Kirkyard. Okay. Spell, literally spelled K-I-R-K. Yeah, that's what it yard. looks like. Kirkyard. Kirkyard. Scottish for churchyard, which means oh. cemetery. Okay. okay. Uh, or has come to mean cemetery now. So it's 1998, and there is a security guard and his dog are making a routine walkthrough of the cemetery after dark. A storm had recently blown through just a couple of hours mm-hmm. beforehand, so part of the duties of the security guard is to make sure there's no vagrants that have taken shelter in the many above-ground crypts on the property. He and his dog walked towards a particularly famous or infamous monument there called the Black Mausoleum. And we'll get on who's interred there in a little bit. But suffice to say, it has a fucking reputation and has had for centuries. As the security guard walks toward the Black Mausoleum, which is so named because it's made of black marble and it's Mm -hmm. a mausoleum. (laughs) Uh, There is more to it. But as he walks toward it, this guy, a homeless man who is bloodied, bedraggled, comes running out from the inside uh, mm-hmm. of this enclosed rotunda that makes up the, the top part of the mausoleum. It's a big okay. structure. Fairly For a mausoleum, it's fairly op- opulent. This guy comes running out in, in the dead of night, um, mind you. He's, like, he's covered in blood. He's bedraggled. He's flailing his arms. He's screaming. He runs past the security guard and into the night, never to be seen or heard from again. But the security guard and his dog are then left to kind of make the discovery of what this guy was running from, okay. which, as disturbing as the sight of this man was, what he's running from was even worse. So it turns out that this poor homeless guy uh, had broken into the Black Mausoleum earlier in the night, probably to to take shelter, at least originally, probably just to take shelter from the storm, which was particularly bad. Uh, or so we might charitably assume of him. And he, you know, you can imagine he's kind of sitting there beneath the stone dome because it's a domed roof, mm-hmm. classic sort of uh, Greek rotunda style, only it's all enclosed. And he broke through, came and sat there to take shelter from the storm, and he's probably listening to the rain hammered down on the, on the slabs when he notices this grate in the floor that is unlocked. In fact, it's never been locked. So he looks down, goes down to these little set of stone stairs to the discrete lower level of the tomb, which is where all the coffins actually are. They're not on the ground level. They're no, underneath, right. right? So, fuck a basement. Mm. Fuck a basement um, filled with dead people! <laughs> you right? And so he finds himself, uh, you know, probably holding a lighter or something over these about six really old coffins that have been okay. there for about at least a couple centuries old. And he thinks to himself, from the evidence we have, this guy thought to himself, well, fuck, why don't I just open these up and see if the people inside are wearing anything I could hawk? Because 
no one's going to give me shit for looting this these particular remains. Mm. But more on that in a bit. But no sooner does he try to pry open the first coffin he's come to than the floor under his feet gives way and plunges him into an even lower level a few feet down that has been sealed off and undisturbed for centuries. No! The guy gets up he dusts himself off, takes looks around. There's apparently this sort of luminescent moss all over the walls, which they call goblin's gold, which is right. really fun. Um, and it's kind of got that eerie half-light quality to it. So his eyes adjust. And as his eyes adjust, he notices that he's not alone. Oh, no! He's surrounded by dozens upon dozens of rotting corpses <gasps> stacked up like firewood. Just hanging out, just like sitting there, like, and they have, they're like, their 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 arms are out, like they're just they're twisted in all these shapes. Their faces have been contorted by decay into these oh. agonizing looking, you know, features, faces. faces, and he's just freaking out now. The weird thing about it is they're still slimy and they're putrescent. Like they're, they're you know, whatever. It turns out these people here died sometime in the uh, 16th century. But for whatever reason, just the, the specific the atmosphere of this kind of moist. sepulcher within a sepulcher is very moist uh, on a dark and stormy night. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I mean, even though they've been dead for centuries, these bodies had been so well preserved by just whatever the fuck was down here in this particular sealed off grotto that they looked like they maybe been dead for only 10 years. So how horrifying to be surrounded by them. Their clothes were still intact. I mean, it was fucked up. So this guy, of course, screams, claws his way out of the hole that he'd fallen into, oh out gosh. of the black mausoleum, past the security guard. And I can't imagine night. trying to get out of a hole like that. Like, I mean, it's like a scene from Poltergeist or something. Yeah. It's like, fuck! Like, it's a scene, if I saw this in a movie, I'd mm. be like, this is some bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. buy it. This is too far. So he runs past the security guard, and we only know that this is what happened to the guy, because the security guard came in after him, and he was like, what the fuck happened? You know, broke into this tomb, because the guy clearly broken in the chain mm-hmm. on the, the front gate. The entrance to the mausoleum was broken, and he sees, oh my god, there's the, oh, he went down in the floor and all that. So all that, and, and the security guard quit. The next day, by the Whoa. way. So I wonder if this guy was really a guy or if he was like a ghost who was down there and then was like, I'm around all these dead people. I'm breaking out. Because he didn't <laughs> know he was dead. And then, this is my movie. And then he runs out and the block <laughs> is actually broken from the inside out. Oh, oh, honey, we'll get there. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> now to be fair, like this this monument, the Black Mausoleum, mm-hmm. has had a sinister reputation for, like I said, centuries, especially to residents of Edinburgh, especially to people that live in the neighborhood of, yeah. of Greyfriars sure, Kirkyard. Yeah. And uh, a little side historical note here. There was a gentleman by the name uh, Deacon William Brody, who was a famous, uh, if you look him up, he's a fascinating uh, character to read about. He was a well-respected church leader and cabinet maker in his day, and by night he was a fucking very successful cat burglar. Oh. And, as it turns out, the model for Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh. He broke a buddy of his out of prison. Love that. That's amazing. <laughs> and the Black Mausoleum had such a reputation that that's where he hit him until they could book passage for uh-huh. him overseas. Just because he knew, like, no one's going to fucking come looking for you here. And so right. the guy, and it worked. He didn't fall he through the floor. It, right? He did well because he just is like, I'm just going to stay up here in the I'm top s- level of the, the porch. Edges. It's fine where there's no one. <laughs> stay um, on the edges where it's solid. 
Right. So it's had a <laughs> reputation for a long enough time that people have been avoiding this, you know, for a long time, even okay. since the days of Robert Lerd, of Deacon William Brody, who I really suggest. It's B-R-O-D-I-E. Look mm-hmm. him up. He's a really fascinating figure. Son of a bitch, but a fascinating cat. Sounds like it. Um, but to the residents of Edinburgh, the real trouble started on that stormy night in 1998. Okay. But before, and, and that's the fact now, just a few years later in 2000, uh, 2003, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> some fucking drunk ass teenagers uh, broke into the Black Mausoleum and mm. like made off with the chief occupant's head and then kicked it around the Kirkguard for a while before they were stopped and whatever. But shenanigans. Shenanigans. Uh, but as fucked up as that is, by that time, Shit had already been going on for a few years, ever since mm. the original break-in. So, let's go, let's tell you a oh little bit God. of history okay. about, first, the, the, the property itself. Okay. And then, because it, it's, it's got one of the most tragic fucking histories I've ever read of. And this is in Scotland. Yeah. So, they had their share we of ha- bullshit. I have a fr- we have a friend, her name's Erica. Mm-hmm. And she went, and she told me this whole story about how she went on this... She was there in Edinburgh, and she went on um, a ghost tour there, and it was the creepiest shit she's ever done. They may have gone. Yeah. I wonder. We'll have to ask her. If I it just was texted this. her to see. <laughs> I was like, "Did you know about this?" She hasn't replied. So uh, it's so Greyfriars Kirkguard is called Greyfriars because sometime in the Middle Ages, this group of Franciscan monks uh, called Greyfriars because of the color of their habit. They migrated over to Scotland from England sometime, and they were allowed to use this property uh, as to kind of live off the land. It's basically, they used it as an herb garden. A massive uh, monastic herb garden, which was a big thing back then. Well, during the Scottish Reformation, Catholicism is now out. So mm-hmm. uh, the Greyfriars were evicted. And just a few years later, in 1591, mind you, the plague had come to town. Mm-hmm. And the local cemeteries at Edinburgh were starting to swell from the constant influx of plague victims dying mm-hmm. in their thousands. So the city of Edinburgh actually petitioned Mary, Queen of Scots, to let them use the old Greyfriars Kirkyard as a mass burial site. So he fell into mass burial. That no one had seen for... 400 years. Plague mass burial. He plague was... mass burial. Fresh looking plague mass burial, right? Oh my gosh. It's like the, the um, what's the movie where he wakes up and he's in the, the pit of dead, of, of dead people. Oh gosh. The Santa Open Claus. grave. Open grave. Oh my God. <laughs> I was going to say the Santa Claus. Close. But, That's how um... I feel if I watch it. No. Uh, open grave. He... He, that's how it starts. He wakes up. It's well, so a great movie. Here's the thing. I've never seen it. You should watch it. Okay. Well, after this, I feel like I should. So um, that's the thing about this this mass burial site for the for plague victims. Like there are there are officially about eight hundred some odd tombs and and marked headstones on the property, right? But it is estimated there's anywhere from one hundred twenty five thousand to <gasps> a quarter million unnamed bodies wow. just teeming beneath the, that were just buried there in mass graves at the time which wow. was the practice i mean people were dying so quickly there was no time for for funeral rites and mm-hmm. they wanted to get them in the ground as quickly as possible because they thought you know the dead spread disease right no i've so, seen i've seen the movies the, the bitch of it 
So imagine a quarter of a million unnamed bodies just beneath the surface. Uh, and so, this, so we'll never know the exact number because archaeologists are not allowed to excavate consecrated ground. And it is still consecrated mm. ground. Um, I mean, they can, but they have to have a really good, very specific goal in mind. And just wanting to see how many bodies are on site is not enough because they'd have to desecrate the whole place. And so the church will not let them touch it. Yeah. But contractors and plumbers and whatnot who work in the neighborhood report frequently for decades have reported finding human bones just like even in as shallow as two or three feet under the ground like that's how i mean it makes sense because you think about those cemeteries here in dallas and across the united states that were just built over yeah you know they were like well we'll keep this much of it and be like this is where all of the people are buried but let's just go ahead and build over right right and that's so but and as awful as that sounds like the this is only the beginning of, mm. of the tragic history of Greyfriars Kirkyard. Mm. So let's I'm talk so about... I'm so ready. Let's talk about <laughs> the person buried, or interred, rather, in the Black Mausoleum, with the most prominent monument on Is this the, the person property. whose head they kicked around? Uh-huh. <gasps> Who is it? A gentleman by the name of Sir George Mackenzie, nicknamed by historians and many people as Sir George Bloody Mackenzie. Now, oh. he did not get that name because he was the inventor of the tampon. No. Um. But now, every lovely girl named Mackenzie can, when she's on a period, I'm Bloody Mackenzie for um. like three to eight days, hopefully. Now, here's the thing, like, to be interred somewhere, like, known locally as mm-hmm. the Black Mausoleum, like, you had to have been a pretty unpleasant guy, right? But to get a nickname like Bloody McKenzie, especially at that time of history... Yeah. Uh, it had to be, know, like, roll, roll, We're blood. not... Yeah, we're pretty bad. <laughs> so this was... <laughs> Like there is like so much blood. He was like so bloody. So like he was this guy. This is this Sir George Mackenzie was many 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 things. He was a lawyer. He was a judge. Renowned essayist. He was a literary light. He was a writer actually, and he he wrote what many people consider to be the first Scottish novel. Uh, and but he was not known for an excess of compassion. So mm-hmm. several years after assuming the the throne at the height of the English Civil War, Sir Charles the uh, Second of England was pressured by his parliament to kind of shore up the powers of the newly refurbished Church of England, right? Mm-hmm. And to do that, he passed this now universally reviled what's called the Clarendon Code, which basically amounted to, like, basically all citizens of England, Scotland, and Ireland who were then under uh, the English crown mm-hmm. uh, of, Sir, of Charles were... were uh, like they had to observe strict Episcopalian worship and practice or face legal penalties up to and including death. Right. So, and here's the thing about Charles II, like he privately like was a fan of religious tolerance at the time, right? but publicly he just kind of bowed to his ministers and like let them in. Instead, well, he just decided to tolerate wholesale fucking, he was set you know, up for that too. persecution. He was, he really was now. So, Mackenzie himself was a veteran deputy justice of the British witch trial, so he was no stranger to inflicting persecution on people. Mm-hmm. Stealing land. He was right. Like and he was also, now that Charles II was was in command, uh, he was what's called the king's advocate, which as far as the politics of Scotland and specifically Edinburgh uh, were concerned, made him kind of like an attorney general with like sweeping powers to come in and and try and punish, convict, execute in the king's name. Now, Mm. 
the Clarendon Code did not go over well with people who were not Episcopalian. In right. fact, there was a group of people that called themselves the Covenanters. And there were a lot of them, so named because they all got together and signed a covenant. It was supposed to be reflective of their covenant with God. And they basically just said, look, we, we respect you, King Charles II, but uh, we would like to worship as we want to worship. Uh, as our conscience dictates, and not because of political expediency. So they called themselves the Covenanters, and while it was a peaceful movement at first, as it gained traction, of course, it kind of got out of hand, and there was a famous... That's kind uh, of what happens. Well, and there was a famous uh, uh, rebellion that kind of went into like a straight-up mutiny. uh, It was called the Battle of Bothwell Bridge in 1679. They rose up. It got pretty bad. But they lost. And mm-hmm. Mackenzie then rounded up 3,000 of the people uh, on the other side that had survived and basically okay. locked them behind the gates of Greyfriars Kirkyard uh, and essentially threw away the key. So, like, within about 100 years of it being a mass fucking burial site for pl- unnamed plague victims, it was yeah. now basically a concentration camp for religious This dissenters. is a very Santa Ana move, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And well, I guess Santa Ana was very a very Mackenzie move. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, true. But I'm sure, I mean, maybe Santa Ana read about Mackenzie. I don't know. He may have. It's possible. The man had a lot of published writings. He did that same shit, so. Mm. You're going to surrender? Cool. We're going to let you guys die. And or slaughter you all. Right, and that's what happened. Behind the lock gates of Greyfriars Cemetery, they were basically kept there. They were allowed to starve to death. They were sometimes outright tortured. Yeah. Executed. Their heads were parboiled, which is when you boil them just enough and you mix in some cumin into oh. onto their onto the, the flesh that remains because birds apparently hate it, or at least seabirds do. And so then you can put the heads on spikes and they'll remain oh. for a while. And they probably didn't the have squirrels because squirrels would have still eaten anything. <laughs> so maybe squirrels don't love cumin as well. I'm sure there's squirrels. Squirrels will eat anything. Put no. They maybe will not. Anything. Maybe not parboiled cumin cumin seasoned heads i don't know i don't know i don't know but i'll believe some, it when i don't see it all i know is that oliver <laughs> cromwell when he died and his head was put outside of like on london bridge like the difference we're going that whole different rabbit hole here but his head was outside on a spike in front of uh on london bridge for 40 fucking years 40 years <laughs> 40 fucking years and i don't know how good that head looked <laughs> and it's well, 39th once it was year but clean i bet it was shining <laughs> It rains a lot there, Alas, so but they were just there, like we're told that's Oliver Cromwell, um, <laughs> but I may be Yorick. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, now and what's sad about the McKinsey thing uh, is that even though like pretty much everybody in in the group of people he locked behind Greyfriars Kirkyard died, um, that was just the beginning. Over the next several years, under the Clarendon Code, he's thought to have directly ordered the deaths of eighteen thousand fellow scotsmen holy shit so All he was just under, a psychopath he was a fucking was butcher and he always maintained that he was doing this within the letter of the law which sadly he was because mm-hmm. the law was fucked and he never got punished for it he was fine like he he did when he finally died uh in 1691 he'd been retired from public life for a while because apparently he tried to uh then king james ii was going to be dethroned and he opposed it publicly and it kind of made him very unpopular mm. so his twitter followers that fell made him off. unpopular and yeah, yeah. <laughs> he lost twitter uh, yeah, he lost, yeah followers. he lost twitter followers his and, uh, and so he just kind canceled. of retired focused on writing and stuff like that but he died in in, in 1691 of just natural causes uh, and Edinburgh was so fucking happy to see him go because he yeah. had such a horrible reputation for killing so many fucking people in the yeah. years that he was King's advocate. 
And all for the stupid fucking Clarendon Code that was all just a bullshit thing farted out by Parliament to be like, well, the church should stay powerful, so everyone has to worship this way, and anyone that politely says, politely declines should be fucking treated like a terrorist. Right. Which is probably just for saying. It wasn't for actually doing. Mm-hmm. But this psychopath gets the power and is like, how can I kill people? And and Probably. and get away with it. And this like, is yeah. Yeah. And that's how and I did it's, it. It's awful. So also, Erica messaged me. She just messaged me and she's like, That's the one I went to. <laughs> oh my god. That's the one she went to. Oh my god. Oh my god. Exciting. This is fucking great. Okay. Bloody so, McKinsey's, yes. So this is what I think about. So so uh, so he died and then he was interred in Greyfriars Kirkyard in the Black Mausoleum. It was specifically built for his remains and that of his family later on. Yeah. Um we don't know how he felt about being buried there. Uh, because, I mean, he's now resting in, on, not only on top of a mass burial site for plague victims that were already 100 or so years old, but on the site where so many fucking people were killed on his orders. So mm-hmm. we don't, so I, I feel, part of me hopes that uh, Mackenzie was buried there as kind of a fuck you. In the afterlife, you're going to have to deal with all the restless souls that you put here but that are still hanging yeah. around. Uh, and so who knows, but... But, I mean, judging from everything that started happening in the the cemetery after that dark and stormy night in 1998, like, something in the Black Mausoleum was raging to get out. Something powerful and something fucking angry. Um, So, like I said, our hapless security guard friend from the beginning of this whole thing, he quit the next day. That same afternoon... A woman was strolling through the cemetery, completely unaware of what had gone on the night before, of course, because it hadn't been published or anything like that yet. And uh, she passed out in front of... She was found unconscious in front of the Black Mausoleum. And Mm -hmm. when she came to, she told people that, like, yeah, well, I noticed that the the gate entrance to the Black Mausoleum was open, so I kind of crept up to look, see what was going on, because it struck me as being odd. And she said this cold, rancid wind came roaring out of the mausoleum and knocked her back with such force that she wound up on her back unconscious. Uh, and as odd as that seems, uh, like the very next day, or excuse me, not the very next day, but less than a week later, another woman was found in front of the black mausoleum with pretty much the same story. Only she said she was going through and she just kind of stopped by in front of the black mausoleum because she knew it as a historical site. And she was choked unconscious by an unseen force. She could Whoa. feel hands around her neck and that choked her until she passed out. And there were, and the authorities found that she had scratches and bruises, a ring of bruises consistent with strangulation Ooh. around her neck. Not long after that, a young guy on a fact-finding mission for some paper he was writing was fact going through. Fact-finding. Fact what did I say? I thought I heard fat-finding. <laughs> and I was like, that's I mean, insensitive. Well, maybe he was writing a paper on fat. I don't know. Um, a fact fact They do have that big, big fatberg in England right now. <laughs> It's the size of the Eiffel Tower. It's blocking pipes and stuff because all this fat has coagulated together to make like an iceberg of fat (laughs) in the pipes. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Tragedy plus time. Um. (laughs) It's still happening, but it's still funny. So this young guy had the same experience, like something just as as he was walking by. 
the black mausoleum uh, just knocked him on his ass and knocked him unconscious. And he woke up with scratches on him and bruises all over his neck. It was fucked up. And this became such a problem of people having these experiences because mm-hmm. the cemetery is open to the public. They could just kind of walk in, especially during the day. This happened in broad daylight, by the way. These aren't people that are like creeping in after hours. Right. You can just walk through it like you can most public cemeteries in the world. And they would have these completely random experiences all right in front of the black mausoleum. Which, while it did have an evil reputation because it was buried there, had not ever had a reputation for this kind of violence associated, right. like paranormal violence with it. Mm-hmm. It always been like, I don't want to go near there because this fucking bloody McKenzie guy is buried there. Right. But like, and I'll tell you that Erica, her story, this is so funny because she just mm-hmm. told me the story um, she and I went on this. It's Erica Lindbeck. She's another voice actor, but mm. she, yeah, you, she's amazing. I love, <laughs> I love her. And so we went on this ghost tour, like in the pouring rain um, in Canada. It was great. We had a good time. And she told me the story afterwards. And I was like, what the fuck is this place? But like, they go, uh, it's, it's a very good ghost tour. So if anybody's in Edmart, they should go. And it's the first time that, because my first ghost tour is ghost tour was amazing and it's like Ugh. hers was really good too so it's uh uh there were like kids there that would wave at somebody who wasn't there and mm. the, the tour had a lot of experiences that she had oh. happen and they had a lot of things happen that day i'll see if i can maybe get her to tell us the story but it was well i'll get into that because the tour group the the only tour group that's still officially allowed to operate mm-hmm. there is probably the one that Absolutely. both of you have been on they're called no i didn't uh, go in, in edmar oh, excuse me that uh, erica did. went Eric, on Eric and that it's it's called uh i think it's it's called Blackheart tours uh but we'll get to them in a second mm-hmm. so like Basically, all this this physical activity of people being attacked by invisible forces or passing out unconscious near the Black Mausoleum or right in front of the Black Mausoleum became so endemic that the city had to step in and start actually posting signs. They felt like idiots, but they had to post signs going, hey, be careful. There seems to be some weird force going on here. So just, you know, after dark. Just so they weren't legally responsible. And, uh... (laughs) And it's fucked up, but it's so uh, it's just fucking crazy. So these stories began making the rounds, and of course, these paranormal thrill seekers would come in and all that. And this, uh, every one of them. I mean, the thing about the Black Mausoleum is that in the since 1998, over 400 people have documented specific experiences Mm -hmm. Uh of shit happening and all very similar of actually being knocked over or smelling something awful or feeling Mm -hmm. this panic. It's not unusual for tour groups to come through there and for everyone to feel the same panic Mm -hmm. at the same time for no reason before they even get to the Black Mausoleum part of the tour. Yeah. Uh, But it'll be near them, but they haven't gotten to the part of the story yet where the tour guide is telling them, oh, this is what this is. So Blackhawk Tours is the only company now permitted by city officials to conduct walkthroughs of the cemetery, and they say an average of about five people a day experience mm-hmm. something. I mean, yeah. everything from dread to panic to some of them wet themselves. Uh, um, Erica did not piss herself. I can tell that. She didn't. Or she at would, least she, she didn't tell, tell me. us. <laughs> she would absolutely tell us. <laughs> so she, she, To be fair, she would. she would. So one night, a retired police officer uh, returned to his hotel room after taking the tour, and he was he picked up a copy of this little locally published book on the Greyfriars hauntings and he was kind of looking through it as you do mm-hmm. when he felt this searing pain at his throat uh, like something was biting him or clawing at him so yeah. he runs to the mirror and he sees these claw marks materialize 
later he posted this online and he later said that his mother took the book from him because she was like whatever I want to read this book it must be really good you know being teasing she had the same fucking experience and in both cases on not even on the same country like she was mm-hmm. I think his mother was living in America or whatever and he eventually like saw her again and gave her the book and she took it back with her and had the same fucking experience and she had the both both of them uh, insist that the claw marks that formed on them are now permanent <gasps> that have never gone away so, like, four, like I said, 400 tourists have experienced something inexplicable near the Black Mausoleum since that fateful night in 1998, and they're not the only ones. Homeowners in the neighborhood frequently report poltergeist activity at their homes. I mean, it right. happens on the regular. Well, and then they you have, think, too, they're probably buried on top of gravesite. Exactly. Yeah. So they get they get their you know typical loud noises, their objects moving by themselves, dishes breaking, etc. Nearby buildings uh, mysteriously catch fire. All the fucking time. There are plumbing issues that make no sense. Dead animals turn up everywhere in the cemetery and in the surrounding neighborhoods on, on the regular. It just that make no sense. There's no marks on them, nothing. They're just dead. Well, you know what? That's kind of surprising because normally animals are like, I'm not fucking going in there if it's creepy. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Well, but it depends on what it is. I mean, well, is it just, something that finds them and brings them back? Like, is it something like... Do they go, do they go in because it's, it's Jekyll? And then once they're in, it's exactly, like, are they yeah. lured in by something? Like you don't know, but it's but there is a, there's a massive amount of dead animals that wound up on the property. Wow. Um, God, I would hate to take care of that property. Right. Well, so 2003, as I said earlier, was a an especially bizarre year for Greyfriars Kirkyard. Not only did that steady stream of visitors fall victim to like fainting spells and nausea and unaccountable scratches and whatnot, a group of drunk teenagers, of course, broke into Mackenzie's tomb in the Black Mausoleum and made off with his head and treated it like a football or soccer <laughs> so ball for a while. So fucking ridiculous. So fucking drunk teenager. Uh, they were caught and had returned, but not long after that, the company to the the tour company's headquarter building, which is on site burned the ground mm. and with it sadly like years worth of records they've been keeping oh. about tour groups personal paranormal experiences so he lost written. his head and they lost their headquarters <laughs> <laughs> that's my rim shot i mean mckenzie was a writer so he was fond of metaphor right um <laughs> one assumes <laughs> so now we get to a really a kind of sad part of it it was kind of interesting so like oh, after now that, it gets sad well i mean a, a more recent thing so in 1999 uh, because of this this onslaught of spiritual like just crazy dark mm-hmm. shit that's been happening for the past year since this this the homeless person had presumably broken in and discovered this grotto of bodies um this minister since the plague had been released <laughs> well this minister by the name of colin grant uh, kind of took it upon himself. Whether he was called in by the city or whether he took it upon himself is not clear. It's like maybe the city might have talked to him, but there was never any official like you should go. Right. But he frequently like he was he was no stranger to Greyfriars Kirkyard. But he decided he was going to go and perform an exorcism of the ground, specifically oh, of the Black Mausoleum. Yes. So he had with him a woman by the name of Susan Burrell, uh, Buttle. I just have to say her Scottish name. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a journalist for the Scotsman. That's a paper, a, a publication yeah. that's been very, very, very old and trusted publication. And she was kind of going with him because she thought it was a really good story. And he would kind of, he was going around the, the churchyard, the kirkyard, and he was, you know, he was reading Bible passages. He was kind of encouraging all these restless souls that he felt were there to kind of move on as best he could. But she noticed, and he was a seasoned exorcist of this kind, like he'd been mm-hmm. doing this for a long time. And this wasn't even really his first exorcism of the of Greyfriars. It was his first time, I think, to concentrate on the Black Mausoleum as he would 
but it wasn't as he was no stranger to what was going on there. Right. He'd, been, he'd been going there on and off for, for a while, ever since the shit started. So this was his he goes there with her mm-hmm. and she notices he is getting more and more drained and worn out as he's going. And he's not a young guy, but he's by no means so old. He's not feeble. Right. Uh, and he she notices that whatever it is is really starting to get to him. And he just kind of blows it off. She, she reported that uh, he constantly seemed more concerned with her safety than his own. So he was like, whatever. And they came and he insisted, too, to be very careful that even though they were going, they weren't near the black mausoleum as yet. They could, he could still sense this evil presence kind of stalking them among the tombs that was giving that was getting more and more potent the closer they got to their destination. Mm-hmm. So when he was in front of the, the black mausoleum, he says his uh, she said, um, Burl said that his administrations got particularly uh, intense. And mm-hmm. then at some point he crumbled to his knees mm-hmm. and was crying like he was really overcome. But eventually he stopped and she kind of had to help him up and lead him off the property. And this uh, she says, you know, he was visibly shaken by what he felt. But she says, quote, like he knew the risk. And that was just the sort of person he was. He yeah. really felt he was trying to help these lost souls. Um, now, just how prepared this Colin Grant guy was for the sort of spiritual and physical blowback of, of such an undertaking, we'll never know. But uh, the well-meaning reverend was found in his rooms the following morning, dead of a massive coronary. Ooh. And, uh, yeah. And that has been the thing. So there's, I'm going to... He had a heart attack. He had a heart attack. He had a heart attack. Poor guy. Um, I will, I want to end on kind of a lighter note that I think is really, I mean, I know the story is so dark and so dreadful that I want to kind of end it with the Grey Friars Bobby, which is a famous little legend, which Erica will also know. So if you go into, uh, Grey Friars Kirkyard, um, you have to pass by this, uh, stone statue of a terrier. That's hanging Aww. out there, and it's known as Greyfriars Bobby. And the story is that in 1850, there was a gardener named a gardener named John Gray who had moved to Edinburgh and had fallen on hard times, and he had to take work as a constable just to make ends meet. And while he was on his rounds, he found this stray terrier that he took a liking to, and he just named him Bobby and gave him food and adopted him. Basically, he took him around, and they for the next uh, almost a decade or more, they. Uh, became a very common sight to people in the neighborhood around uh, Grey Friars Kirkyard is John Gray and Bobby. He called him mm-hmm. Bobby. And uh, John Gray sadly died in 1950, excuse me, 1858, and he was laid to rest in Grey, in Grey Friars. And thereafter, Bobby, who had no one to take care of him, uh, stayed on his gravesite. For he, he couldn't be dissuaded. Like groundskeepers were like, get out of here, whatever. You'd always come back, and they realized pretty soon that they just couldn't get rid of the poor dog. Mm-hmm. So they just started feeding him, and he became kind of a local celebrity over the years. Like he stayed there for year. I mean, he uh, Bobby himself passed away seventeen years at, at the age of seventeen. Oh wow, so old for a terrier. Yeah, and. Um, I'll cross my fingers on that for a Right, right. <laughs> so Bobby kept watch over his master's grave day and night, and Aww. and. Um, he he became such a celebrity that I mean cl- crowds would gather to kind of give him food and pay his respects and take pictures or not take pictures but to because uh, they didn't take pictures back him but draw him or whatever. But he was so well loved that when the city of Edinburgh. Uh, introduced dog leash and ownership laws and like mm-hmm. fees and stuff like that. They actually, the city paid out of pocket to maintain his freedom Aww. and made him a permanent resident uh, of Aww. of the cemetery where he stayed that day. And then he was found dead one morning on the graveside. He was old and he died in his sleep on his master's grave. Aww. And he was buried right next to him. They buried Aww. him on the site. So he, he passed away on July 14th, 1872 at the ripe old age of 16 and was buried beside John Gray. And uh, the plaque erected in his honor 
reads, quote, may his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. Oh, that's going to make me cry. I know. You're good. So such sweet. best boy. He's such a best boy. boy. Mackenzie's a bastard, but Greyfriars Bobby is the best. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good story, Michael. Thank you. I really Thank liked you. it. Thank you. Yours was fucking great. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. I just think it's so funny, too, that I had heard the story from Erica. I was like, wait a minute. I don't know what you're talking about. And then when you start telling, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> but ultimately, it was, I've never been. I've never been. I, I want to go. I want to go so I want to go, and I kind of don't want to go. I want to go so Note bad. to self, don't buy the book. Don't buy the book. <laughs> don't buy the book. I wonder if Erica bought, bought the book. I'm going to talk to her. We're, we're going to have to have her on the show now. That's just all there, there is There may be it. a new edition of the book now that's like, like now with this less evil scratchy. spirit. <laughs> this, is, this one's not as scratchy. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Okay. This has been fun. I this needed this really today. Yeah, I needed this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that is all for today's episode of Ghoul Intentions. Thank you so much for listening and check us out on Instagram and Twitter where we will post images of stuff we talk about and keep you updated on our uh, soon to be figured out Patreon. (laughs) We're working on it. We're stressing about it. Work in progress. Um, But we'll we'll have some answers for you soon. Um, And we also will let you know about new merchandise. If you buy merchandise and we see you, we'll take pictures of you and put it online. Absolutely, (laughs) we will. And just like other fun stuff that we have Mm -hmm. going on. And you can go to ghoulintentions.com for links to those uh, social media sites, to listen to previous episodes, uh, to shop at our brand new store. Thank you, Color World, oh my for helping God, set us up with that. Thank you, Color the World. The shirts are fucking awesome. So I we, love them. We have right now, we have Ghoul Intention shirts that have our logo on it and Bitches in White. Hashtag, Hashtag Bitches, bitches in White shirts. <laughs> and you can get them. There are a couple of different fonts for mm-hmm, the Bitches in mm-hmm, White. Mm-hmm. And you can get... Um, different colors. Different colors. You can get hoodies. You can really uh, personalize it, too. So. You can totally get Hashtag Bitches in White in red. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and, and we have more stuff coming. And they coming. fit great. Like, I, I'm very picky about the t-shirts I wear, and they fit beautifully yeah like, well I that's just, why we went with color world too um, yeah. besides it being brad and rachel who are awesome people awesome um they are their shirts are super quality like mm-hmm. they're pre-washed they have these great heathered material that i fucking love it's really soft the shirts yeah. are really soft and so you know if you go to our store it links up it links to their site and so if you have other things that you like you know they'll and they have, have all kinds of cool shit all kinds, kinds of great yeah. stuff it's amazing and they are looking into getting us more stuff so if you see us at conventions we'll have stickers stickers and I think those are only going to be available right now at conventions yeah for now at for conventions now. yeah um, but t-shirts you can certainly buy right now and, mm-hmm. and, and they know yard are work shirts no right. they ain't nope. mm-hmm. and there's more stuff coming more stuff Yay! coming uh, and of course, and uh, like I said, you can go to the website for the store and the previous episodes, mm-hmm. and most importantly, most to submit importantly. your own ghost story for consideration to be read on a future episode of Google Intention. That's right. There is a whole new mm-hmm. link for it. It's a submission page. It's super easy to submit. Just get your story, fill out some things, and send it. Yep, it's yep, super, yep. Super, super easy. You'll find that form in the menu under uh-huh. quote submit your ghost story yeah. end quote. And then and then su- submit your ghost story. Quote. We need them. If you're Speaking thinking, quotes, I don't know, we do. We do. We need them. We need, we need them. them. Yeah. We need them. Uh, the bar has been significantly raised. I, know. I will say that. The submissions we've gotten recently have been fucking amazing. Yeah. So, again, it. thank you, Steve, for your submission Steve, that yes. we started this episode with. The rest of you, bring your A game. That's right. 
All right, now, speaking of a game, I better bring mine because now we have a quote uh -huh. that I'm going to fuck up. Are you ready? Yeah. Don't dream it. Be it. Oh. <laughs> the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah! It was so big. I didn't. Yes. I didn't. I didn't know if you would get it because it's so fucking big. If it's Tim Curry, I fucking know yeah. it. That's all there is. Dr. Like Dr. Tim Frank Curry is Doctor Frank and Furter. That's right. Yay! Yay. Yeah, I so feel easy. very accomplished. And it applies. Thank you. Don't it, dream it. Be it. it. It's so true. <laughs> so true. We need to make a song of our closing statement, which is, of course, remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.